All right. So if you're not sure what we're talking about today, um, you need some help. But um, so we, when uh, Pastor Barden was uh, discussing this upcoming series, this was quite a few months back, and because um, we've been planning, we plan some seri- you know message series out in the future. And so um, he's ta- he's like, yeah, I'm going to be gone this week, and so um, I want you to t- talk about sex. All right. Okay, you get, all right, I guess that was payback because when I was in youth ministry, I made um, Carl Brazelton talk about God's wrath um, whenever that topic came up because I was too afraid to do it. And I said, Carl, you, you preach on it. And he was like, okay, so I guess that's payback. But um, so I've got lots of charts and graphs that we're going to look at today. Just kidding. Just, I'm just joking. Um, but I, how many, I think that that video shows a really good, uh, uh, focuses on, on a good uh, aspect of what love, we're not just going to talk about sex, um, although, um, you know, that's going to be part of it, but we're going to talk about love and romance in, in the middle of that. We're going to look at a Bible story today that's going to kind of reveal some things to us that I think all of us are going to relate to, many uh, many of us more than others, but I think there's something in the Bible that, ref- that helps us understand what, what it is that God is intending through romance and love and relationships that I think that that we have uh, a distorted view in. Um, how many of you wear glasses? How many people wear glasses? Okay. Um, how many of you have no idea how dirty your glasses are half the time? Yeah, me too. My wife will grab my glasses and she'll look at them. She'll go, how are you even, lo- how do you see anything through these things? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess they're just so close to my face that I can't see all the smudge marks and my fingerprints. Um, you know, so, uh, but that's kind of, I think what's happened with, um, with sex and love and romance and just, uh, just relationships in general, that there has been a distor- there's been such a distortion that it's unrecognizable sometimes. And so my hope today is through um, the revelation of scripture that we will be able to, to see and expose the lies that, um, that are there that we have bought into, that maybe you have bought into. And my hope and desire is that, um, is that, is that God can take our spiritual glasses and, and wipe them off and help us see more clearly because it'll, it'll save us a world of destruction. It'll, it'll save us from hurt and pain and it'll save our spouses or significant others or future spouses, um, that same stuff. So, um, we're just going to get jump right into this and see where this is going to take us. Cause I'm really excited, um, about the Bible story that we're going to talk about. Um, today in the Old Testament. But before we get in there, um, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 3.11. It'll be on the screen. You can also um, look in your Bible if you have one, or you can just listen. But this is what it says, 3.11 from the New Living Translation. It says, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end, from beginning to end. So um, this one part that says he planted eternity in the human heart, that's a pretty big deal. That means that within every human being, whether we recognize it, admit it, or want to believe it or not, it's there, that, that eternity is planted because the Bible states that we are created by God. And so with that creation, we have eternity in the human heart. So that's what this means. This means that we can never be completely satisfied by worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures ever. And it is an insane quest to discover joy and satisfaction in the things that God has not designed to satisfy us fully. 
There's simply no way to be satisfied at the level of our, that our heart wants to be satisfied. And, and, if, and if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, and there's times in my life that I've, I've strayed a little bit and have been excited about things that God doesn't want for me, and there's been times I've watched people stray from the things that God wants for them, and you can see um, their lives kind of become in disarray, but there's never enough that you can get, and then you want more. Whenever we search for a worldly pleasure, success, money, relationships, something, love. We want someone to love us. And the more we search for that and the more we run after that, even when we get it, it's not good enough. Even when we get it, we want more. Even when we're successful, we want more. Even there was a, a study that was done when they asked every uh, different people at different brackets of financial, um, financial status. So they asked someone that made $40,000, how much would it take to make you happy? And they were like, if I could make another 20 grand, I'd probably be a lot happier. I'd probably, that's where I'd be in my, that would be my happy place. So, so then they asked someone who made 60,000. And then they said, if I made about 20 more thousand, it didn't matter how far, they went up to 200,000 people that made $200,000 a year. And they said, if I could just make about $50,000 more. So it's always more. It's never, you're never satisfied when you get to the point, you get to that point, you're not, you're just going to, it's just going to die off. You're going to want more. You're going to want more and you're going to want more and you're going to want more. So our desire for more drives us further into insanity as we continue to seek in things that will never truly satisfy. So because we're in creating God's image, check this out. This is what this means. Number one, we have a thirst for meaning and purpose, even if we don't realize it. We have eternal value that God himself has given us. That's going to be an important part of what we're going to talk about today. Eternal value, your value and worth has already been determined by the God of this universe. And it has been proven through the evidence of Jesus dying for us on the cross. The cross is the evidence that God is head over heels for you and I because he sent his son Jesus to die for every wrong thing you did, will do, and will do tomorrow. Everything. If that is not evidence of a loving, compassionate, merciful God, then you will never find it because it is ultimately found right there. The empty cross. Jesus died and then was buried and then rose again. And we get to participate in that for those that place their faith in him. So we have, we have eternal value. You don't have to seek eternal value. You have eternal value. If that's something you need to write down, then write it down. Uh, you, you can write down whatever you want, but I would write that down. If you're someone who struggles with, with value and worth, you have eternal value. God has stated it and it is true. Number three, nothing but eternal, nothing but the eternal God will truly satisfy us. Nothing but the eternal God will truly satisfy us, even if you don't acknowledge it. So this really boils down to idolatry. Idolatry can almost be always tracked down to some discontentedness. Okay, so um, I, I would call some, some of us have what I would call functional hells. We have a functional hell. We, we might, there's, a, there's something that's deprived within us. There's something that we just don't want to the point that if we were to live in that, it would be hell for us. For some of us, it's financial insecurity. It's being poor. It's being on the streets. That is, if, if your functional hell is, poor, is, is poverty, then your functional savior is money. If your functional hell is being thin and attractive, I'm sorry, if your functional hell is, is, is being overweight or, or what you would say is ugly, then your functional savior is thinness and attractiveness and beauty. And you'll chase it and you'll run after it and you'll want it. And you'll be angry when you see people who have it and you'll look at yourself and the comparison trap will grab you every time. The claws of comparison will pull you deeper, deeper into your idolatry. Because God has already said you are valuable. 
You are valuable because the God of the universe created you. This discontentedness is the reason why we don't like our jobs, how much money we make, or what we look like in the mirror, or how big our house is. We don't like how, our, how old our golf clubs are, or how many purses we own that don't have matching shoes, or that some of our furniture doesn't match the color on the walls. We see our neighbors get, a new, get new patio furniture, and all of a sudden ours are outdated and ugly. Our coworker gets a raise, and, and, and you didn't, and all of a sudden you're questioning your value in the eyes of your supervisor when just yesterday he congratulated you on a, on a job well done. These are all symptoms of potential idols. These are all symptoms that we are looking for something or someone other than God to satisfy us. This discontentedness is why pornography is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Because men and women have a pleasure idol that demands to be served. It's why we have programs like Desperate Housewives because women and men feel neglected and have formed an emotional idol to cure their love drought that demands to be served. This discontentedness is what this discontented. I gotta stop. I gotta use a different word. Does anyone know a different word than discontentedness? Text it to me right now, please. Save me from this. My functional hell is this word. I need a functional savior. This discontentedness is why so many young women dress provocatively and go out to woo the opposite sex using their bodies as bait. They are literally screaming. I see when I, this is how I feel when I see women in our world who dress provocatively to the point where they're trying to attract the opposite sex. I see people who are screaming to the world, I'm valuable. Look at me. I am valuable. There's something that's been depleted within me, but please look and notice how valuable I am. That's what I see. Maybe not with everybody, but that's, that's what I see. When value is stripped from an individual during the formative years of their lives, which is usually between 9 and 16 years old, they begin to look for other ways to feel valued. But here's the issue. Our biggest issue as a human race is this. We spend most of our lives, we spend most of our lives looking for non-eternal things to satisfy us, non-eternal relationships to validate our value and worth, and non-eternal pursuits to provide our security that only God has promised to provide. We end up spending so much time faking it that we don't even know what's real. We spend so much time trying to fool people into believing things about us that aren't true that we aren't even sure what it looks like to be the real person that God intends for us to be. Ultimately, heaven will fully satisfy us. God determines our value and worth, and our security rests in the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. If we don't have those three things shaping our hearts, we are susceptible to being duped into buying into a counterfeit presented by some sleazy salesman promising something that that it can't deliver. And we will always hate what we get. There's a great illustration, and I love this story in the Bible. There's a part of the story that just gets me all pumped up because I love when people, I'll share it when we get there. I won't won't spoil the story, but I love this story because of one element of it, um, because I'm a little twisted and warped. But um, you'll see see why in a few minutes. But we're going to look at Genesis 29. We're going to look at Genesis 29. We're going to start in 16 through 20. So we'll just read it, and it'll be on the screen as well. But um, now it says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years I will serve you, Laban. She is so fine that I will serve you for seven years. That was an exorbitant amount of time to serve the father when you wanted one of his daughters in marriage. There was a bride price uh, back in those days. It was customary to provide the father of, your, of the future bride um, financial gain. But um, this, was hot. this was radical. This was way more than was ever normally offered. 
So he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter. It is better, and Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Sounds like a great Hallmark card, right? It was but a few days, my love. Those seven years. So here we begin to see the story unfold, but there's a part of the story that needs to be understood for us to really grasp what's going on here. Um, Jacob was insanely crazy about Rachel. Seven years, like I said, was worth, worth of wages was astronomically higher than the going rate that any father would as, ever ask for any, from any man. But love, idle love, makes us do crazy, crazy stuff. It deceives us into expecting unrealistic results and makes, us un, and makes unhealthy demands. So why did Jacob desire her so intensely? Why was Jacob so smitten by her that he was willing to do what was normally never done to win her over? Jacob had a, a, a twin brother named Esau. And if you're not familiar with the story, even though he's a twin, Esau, he came out, they came out of the womb um, together, but Esau was mere seconds before him. And so Esau, because he came out first by mere seconds, is considered the older brother. While their mother, Rebecca, was pregnant with them, the Lord revealed to her that two nations were growing inside of her and that they would be divided. One would be stronger than the other. And this is the most important part. The older would serve the younger. The older would serve the younger. This was not... This was not known in that culture. The younger would always serve the older. The older would get the inheritance. The older would receive the blessing from the father. The older brother would always get the elite status within the family. But here's a prophecy that God gives to Rebecca saying that the older will serve the younger. This was crazy. This was unheard of. And so um, after the sons were born, Isaac, their father, began to favor Esau over Jacob and Rebecca favored Jacob over Esau. Now check this, check it out in Genesis 25, 27 through 28. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Jacob. Isaac's the father. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. I can see Isaac seeing Esau as this hunter, this warrior guy. You're the man's man. You're out killing animals. With your bare hands, yeah, and cooking them up and eating them. Mm. Mm. Lots of grunting going on in that family. And then there's Jacob. He's a quiet guy that dwells in tents. He's over there. He's probably hiding in a tent somewhere, but you're out killing things. Yeah, Esau. People would come over and they'd be like, you see what Esau killed? Look at at all these things Esau killed. What did Jacob do? He built a tent over, I guess. I think there's a tent that he built. He sleeps in it. He likes to have little sleepovers. But look at what Esau did. Look at all the heads of the animals. He would show Esau off. Now, now I'm making light of this, but I want you to understand that that would be very um, hurtful, painful for Jacob. Jacob is seen as, as he's not seen. He's overlooked over and over and over. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau. So Jacob was left with the scraps of his father's love. Jacob was not loved as much as he was uh, from his father as much as Esau. And he knew it. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe within your family, you felt overlooked. Maybe within your friendships, you feel overlooked. Maybe within, maybe within your circles at work, you feel overlooked. It causes something within us to happen. To deny it, is, it would be wrong because we have to acknowledge it in order to understand that God can deal with it. 
God can help us through it. So why is this such a big deal? An Old Testament blessing of a father to his sons um, include now. Oh, I'm sorry. So that's 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 past. So let me let me back you up a little bit. Um, when Isaac grew old, so Isaac is getting to be an old guy, and he thinks to himself, "I got to give my blessing away. I got to pass my blessing on to my my oldest child Esau, who I love." More than Jacob, I love Esau. And so um, he pulls Esau into his, into his, into his room, and he's, he's blind at this point. His eyesight is poor. He can't really see. But he says, Esau, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, and I want you to kill some game, and I want you to make my favorite dinner. And then when you come back, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pass my blessing on to you. But go and hunt and kill game and bring, some, bring my favorite meal back. And so Esau excitedly walked out of the bedroom and, and ran out and, and began to go do his hunt. Well, Rebecca, the wife, knew this. This is where the prophecy begins to, to unfold. She, cut, she brings Jacob to, to, to herself and she says, Jacob, your dad sent Esau out to go kill game and prepare for his favorite meal because he's going to pass his blessing on. What I want you to do is we're going to make a meal and you're going to pretend to be Esau because da- dad's sight's going, man. So what we're going to do is you're going to fool dad into thinking you're Esau so you can get his blessing. Now, now there's some family dynamics here because mom and dad aren't on the same page. I mean, mom's pulling Jacob in and deceiving to deceive dad. Dad's, you know, there, there's some favoritism between the two sons and there's not a lot of discussions between how do we raise our kids, obviously. And so, um, but, but, but we see this scenario playing out. And so Jacob puts on clothing that makes him look hairy because Esau was a hairy guy, burly and manly. I don't know why hairiness is, makes you manly. But it does. So if you're really hairy, then welcome to the manhood. But um, so, uh, but he so he he puts on clothing to make him smell like Esau. He he puts on clothing to make him feel like Esau. He cooks his favorite game just like Esau would. And so he delivers it to his dad under the disguise of Esau. And his dad buys it, even though his voice isn't really the same. Even though his voice is, it sounds like Jacob, the, the scriptures say that even though Isaac knew that the voice was different, he still bought into it because the rest of his senses seemed to have been functioning well. And so he said, you look like, or you feel like Esau, you smell like Esau, and you cooked a favorite game like Esau would. So guess what? I'm going to give you my blessing. And so he blesses him. He steals his brother's blessing. So why is this such a big deal? Because the Old Testament blessing of a father to his sons included words of encouragement Details regarding each of the son's inheritance, which the older son would always get. Um, and, and prophetic words concerning the future. So the father would prophetically speak into their son's lives and tell them that this is who God is going to make in them. Receiving a blessing from one's father was the highest honor you could have, and losing a blessing was tantamount to a curse. Losing your blessing was as if you had been cursed. Esau lost his blessing to his younger brother, and it infuriated him. In fact, it infuriated him so much that he plotted to kill Jacob once his father had passed. Rebecca, knowing this, sent Jacob away. And that's where we enter our story with Laban. So now he's with Laban, which is another family member. And um, he's staying with him, and he sees Rebecca, who is beautiful. And great figure, the Bible says. Great figure, beautiful. And this is where we, so this is where we are now. So Jacob enters this situation not receiving his father's love, having to fight for it every single day, being overlooked all the time. The only way that he could receive his father's love is to manipulate it, to draw it out of him by manipulation. Can you believe that? Imagine how that would make you feel as you enter into the situation where the only way you can gain your dad's love is by manipulating him and taking advantage of his blindness and tricking him into thinking you're his favorite son. That's got to be horrible. So that kind of stuff runs pretty deep. 
Here's, uh, here's some thoughts uh, uh, that Tim Keller, who is the author of the book that um, this series is drawn from, he says this. He says, Jacob's inner emptiness had made him vulnerable to the idolatry of romantic love. Jacob's behavior was that of an addict. There are many ways romantic love can function as a kind of drug to help us escape the reality of our lives. Our fears and inner barrenness make love our narcotic. A way to medicate ourselves and addicts always make foolish, destructive choices. Think about that. Addicts make, always make foolish and destructive choices. Rachel had become Jacob's savior. He was addicted to her because of the love he didn't receive from his father. He wanted to receive from her. So Genesis 29, 21 through 22 says this. Then Jacob said to Laban, now this, this, this is crazy. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Dad's out there. Can you imagine your girlfriend's boyfriend, your, your daughter's boyfriend coming in to your house and saying, daddy-o, man, it's been seven years and your girl is so fine. I want me some of that. That's basically what he said. I know that sounds vulgar, but the word that's literally the Hebrew here is very vulgar. So to all the dads in the room, you can imagine your daughter's boyfriend approaching you and saying that. So when the day came, the walls came down. Jacob pleads uh, with Rachel's dad, I've done what you want. I'll give her to me. But check out Laban's response. He throws a feast. He doesn't get offended. He doesn't throw down the gauntlet. Do you know why? Because check out this verse. This, and this is the part that I love. So remember when I said in the beginning that I love this story? This is why I love this story. Because this is the part where I go, oh, yeah. Daddy-o knew what he was doing. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Ha ha! Ah! Ha ha! Wrong girl. I gave you my other daughter to trick you. My other daughter to trick you. What is this you have done to me? I will... He goes, um... Behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also. In return for, uh, in return for serving me another seven years. So another seven years, Jacob, and you could have Rachel. We'll give her to you now, but it's going to be an exchange for another seven years. He tricked him. He tricked him into the, the other daughter. Now, now I want you to think about something as we close this out think of leah and how she feels right now so jacob did so and completed her week then laban gave him his daughter gave him his daughter rachel to be his wife and laban gave his female servant billa to his daughter rachel to be her servant so jacob went into rachel also for he loved rachel more than leah and served laban for another seven years he's repeating what his dad did he loved leah he loved rachel more than leah and leah knew it His love made him so lovesick that he didn't even re- he forgot the customs of the day. It wasn't unknown to him that the custom of the day was for the older daughter, the, the older daughter, to be married first, which was Leah. So the fact that the dad had to marry her off first meant that he had to that she, he didn't even have access to Rachel until Leah was married off. But Jacob didn't didn't let that stop him. He he forgot all about these customs because he was so lovesick. But so far, we've concentrated on Jacob and his love addiction. However, I want to draw your attention to Leah and her love deprivation. Much like Jacob growing up, she was always in the shadow of her sister. 
The Hebrew text literally says about Rachel that she had a great figure and on top of that was beautiful. Leah was described as someone with weak eyes, which refers to being maybe literally being cross-eyed or, or at least unsightly in some way. In other words, the Bible's just saying that guys weren't all about looking at her. Her own father has to trick a guy who's head over heels for Rachel to sleep with her so he can guarantee that she and Rachel will be married off. Can you imagine that your own father believing that your ugliness is so massive that you could never land a guy on your own? Your own dad has to trick a guy that loves your, your sister so that you can be married too. That's not low self-esteem. That's no self-esteem. I want you to watch how this plays out in their relationship. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb. This is from Genesis 29, 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah received, conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name will be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Did you catch something there? Each time Leah bore a son to Jacob, which was a big deal in that culture. She believed that she was one step closing to achieving her husband's affection and attention. Her sons were her way of getting her husband to love her. Except for the last one, Judah. Check out Keller's thoughts here from his book. It says, It is often said that men use love to get sex and women use sex to get love. As in all stereotypes, there is some truth to this, but this story shows that both of these counterfeits, counterfeit gods disappoint. Because Jacob sought to get his wife valid, sought to get his life validated from having physical, beautifully wife, he gave his heart to a woman towards whose immaturity and shortcomings he was blind. Leah's counterfeit god was not sex. She obviously had, enough, had access to her husband's body, but not his love and commitment. She wanted him to be attached to her, to, give, to have his soul cleave to her, but he did not. Her life became bound in shallows and miseries. I want to make some bold statements here that I've carefully written out. I want to read to you, to some of you in this room. I hope, I'm guessing this is going to hit someone within, in this room. But both Leah and Jacob were looking for something created to ultimately satisfy them, bring them value and worth, and provide security in ways only God can and has promised to. So, for all you married people out there, please hear me. If you are looking to your spouse to ultimately satisfy you, ultimately determine your value and worth, and ultimately provide you with security, then you are depending on a person created by God to replace the creator who created that person. You have an idol. There are things that only God can do. Don't depend on your spouse to do them. They'll suffocate under the weight of that impossible responsibility, and you'll end up needlessly shaming them when they don't deliver. That does not mean to not hold each other accountable to do the things that husbands and wives are supposed to do, but to limit that to what husbands and wives are supposed to do and not to extend it to the things that only God can do. For all you dating people out there, please hear me. If you are discontent with the status of your current relationship and feel that marriage will, quote, cure your discontentedness, then you are looking for an institution created by God to replace the creator who created that institution. You have an idol. 
Please realize happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness is momentary, uh, a flare-up of positive emotion directly connected to a specific circumstance. When the situation goes away, so does your happiness. Joy, however, is connected to something much more stable. It is a state of the heart that is able to remain completely at peace, even in the midst of dire circumstances. Discover joy in your creator and enjoy happiness through his creation. Don't ever mix the two up. For all you single people out there, please hear me. If you are not experiencing joy in your singleness because you are waiting for a dreamed up created being to satisfy you, bring you value and worth and help you feel secure in ways that only God can and only God has promised to fulfill, then you have traded the creator for some future somebody. You have an idol. There is not one person on the face of this planet that will sufficiently fulfill you in areas that God has promised to fulfill. When you do meet Mr. or Mrs. Dream come true, they'll never measure up to your unreasonable standard and you'll soon become disappointed. But here's where there's hope. In all of this, regardless of your idol of love or sex, the answer isn't to focus harder on the idol in order to combat it. It is to hone in on the cross and tra- chase the true savior with your whole being. Check out Keller's words. When God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he was truly the son of Leah. He became the man nobody wanted. He was born in a manger. He had no beauty that we should desire him from Isaiah 53, 2. He came to his own and his own received him not, John 1, 1, John 1, 11. And at the end, everybody abandoned him. Jesus cried out even to his father, why have you forsaken me? Why did he become Leah's son? Why did he become the man nobody wanted for you and for me? He took upon himself our sins and died in our place. If we are deeply moved by the sight of his love for us, it detaches our hearts from other would-be saviors. That's what we need today, folks. We need for our hearts to be detached from other would-be saviors that would even dream of capturing our affection the way Jesus should. We stop trying to redeem ourselves through our pursuits and relationships because we are already redeemed. If you are in Christ today, you are already redeemed. You don't have to chase anything. Jesus is who you chase after. We stop trying to make ourselves into saviors because we have the savior. You see, here's the deal. Rachel was Jacob's functional savior. Rachel was his counterfeit God. Jacob falsely believed that achieving an the affections of a really good-looking wife would secure his self-worth and dis- that was destroyed by his father. Jacob's true, true savior doesn't require work to achieve his affections. It's offered to him. Jesus offers us his grace. There is nothing you have to do to work yourself for seven years in order to gain his good graces. God does not withhold Jesus until you work hard enough like Jacob did in order to earn his grace. It is given to you free of charge. All you have to do is embrace it. Isn't that awesome? Please don't play the part of J- please don't play the part of Jacob in this story and think that you have to work yourself into God's grace. Jacob was Leah's functional savior. Jacob was her counterfeit god. Leah falsely believed that having children would drive her husband to love her, thus her identity issues solving her identity issues that were developed by her sister. Leah's true savior isn't driven to love us based on the gifts we bring him. This has got to be true for us that are Christians in this room. That God does not love you more the more you serve, the more you do, the more you, the more you give. He does not love you more because you do more. He loves you, period. 
And that, my friends, is what can, can, can be a catalyst in our hearts to make us choose to serve him because he already loves us, not to, to serve him so that he'll love us. He already does, and it can set you free for a life of serving him. The cross of Christ screams to humanity, I gave this so you don't have to. There is no fear of someone looking better than you, doing more than you, performing harder than you, because Jesus was the one that did all of it for you. Leah's security and ours was provided on the cross. I want this one last story to really allow you to see what uh, the extent is of God's love for us. In Luke 15, 17 through 24, when he finally came to his sense, and this is the story of the prodigal son, and um, before this all happens, the son takes all, if you don't know the story, the son takes, the younger son takes his father's inheritance and runs away and decides, I'm going to go do what I want to do with my life, and I'm going to go live it the way I want. I don't want to do what my dad wants me to do. I'm just going to go live it. And so he takes his dad's inheritance, and he runs out, and he spends it on uh, all this crazy lifestyle, uh, all these crazy things he wants to do. But then he comes to his senses, and he decides, I'm going to go home to my dad. So when he finally comes to his senses, he says to himself, at, at, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. If you have a Bible open, or if you ever get to this verse, underline he ran to his, to, to his son, because that was unheard of. That was almost borderline complete shame for a father to run at all to run like that because they didn't dress like they would have, they, 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 they would have their clothing and, and, and they would have to pull, pull up their clothing and run and they would show their, le- their legs, which was shameful. And this whole idea that was happening is that the father gave everything to go after his son. He said, you aren't going to be a hired servant, my friend. You are my son. You are welcome in this house. Come back home. Come back home. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick. He didn't even answer his son. He's so excited about what his, son, his son's back. He doesn't even try to correct him. Instead, he throws a party. He doesn't even respond to his son. After his son says that, he says to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get the ring for his finger and the sandals for his feet. Kill that calf over there that's been, that's been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Please don't ever believe the lie that you have to come as a hired servant to God in order to prove your worth to him. He created you. You are worthy to him. You are valuable to him. This story clearly illustrates that God's remarkable devotion to us. We can give up on him, but he never gives up on us. We can abandon him, but he'll never abandon us. We can run away from him, but he's always running towards us. That's our God. He's no counterfeit. He doesn't let you down. He doesn't demand slavery from you. He doesn't enslave you in the, in the clutches of sinfulness and despair and destruction. He saves you from it. And yes, he will demand things of you and take things from you that will, that will cause you slavery in other areas of your life. And the moment, here's the, here's the dangerous part, the moment that we begin to say, I want this and God says no, and then we decide, well, I want it anyway, then we get it and then we blame God. It's a weird, cyclical, vicious circle, isn't it? When we get what we actually want that God never intended us for have, to have, it's really weird how sometimes we blame God for getting the consequences that that thing we chased after offers us. Pretty weird. So it's not until we ditch our functional saviors that we will, all, that we will understand the beauty and the magnificence of our true savior. Would you guys stand?
I want us to sing this last song. And this is an opportunity for us to rejoice. I don't want you to focus. If you've been sitting in this room right now and you're like, man, I do know what my functional savior is. I know what I run after. And maybe it's not even love or sex. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's, maybe it's money. Um, maybe, maybe it's looks. Maybe, whatever it might be for you. Whatever your savior is. Whatever it is that you think that thing is going to make me the happiest. If that thing isn't God. If that thing isn't God, then it's his functional savior. And we need to ditch those things. But I don't want you to focus on your functional saviors. I want this moment as we sing to be an opportunity to focus on the Savior. Let him have your heart. As we sing, as you sing, allow God to do something in your heart. Allow him to replace that functional Savior that maybe you have been serving, has been demanding things of you, and come. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I do everything for you. I do everything through you. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is come. So I wonder if we can lay enough pride down, if we can give up enough of ourselves, if we can sacrifice our wants enough to say, you know what, God, I want you more than anything else. As we sing, I want you to allow God to speak to your heart and to reveal to you how marvelous and magnificent he really is. Let's pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, as we begin to sing, I pray that you change hearts, that you transform us, God, from the inside out, that you would allow us to rejoice, God, that we would truly rejoice in who you are so that our other saviors, our functional saviors, would just be swept away. They would literally disintegrate before our eyes because you are so magnificent and so great that we don't want anything to do with them, that we can't even imagine what life is going to be like now tomorrow because we have left those other saviors to serve the Savior, you, Jesus. Help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen.